0: This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the... Today on Race Capital, we're here to get to the heart of two of the most publicly discussed issues of the city and here to unpack the connection of the mass evictions and the proposed Navy Hill RVA Coliseum project are Art Burton and King Salim Kafani, two longtime social justice warriors in the city. We're wrapping up 2019, the 400th year, blah, 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 blah. We've heard the story all year round. It's time to get back at home and talking about what's happening on our land where we stand and what we fight for. Today, I'm really excited to have two guests that are truly historic here in the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, and Black Richmond, our chocolate city. We have two men that have been using their voice, their intelligence, their network, and their hearts. To make sure that Richmond has been receiving the credit and the amplification that we all deserve. So good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Ready
1: for the revolution.
0: Here we are. So today we have Art Burton and King Salim Kalfani. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. So here at Race Capital, we are always interested to bring some history of untold stories that many people haven't heard here in Richmond, mostly because um, the system is set up that way to not record our stories, believe our stories and make them a permanent fixture here in Richmond. But yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited because I know you all from so many different lanes. I mean, these men have been involved for years and I'd like to the, just allow them to introduce themselves a little bit, talk a little bit about what they've been doing and um, how you all can find them in the community. Who wants to go first?
1: Allude to continua, the struggle continues. I am King Salim Kalfani. And I would like to start with the fact that this is where it all began. This is where African people were codified into property. This is a breeding state that produced an ethos uh, that. If we didn't go along to get along, we would be sold downriver to Natchez or to New Orleans uh, on foot. And by being a breeding state, you know, uh, cotton doesn't grow from Petersburg up. Mm. So we were the cash crop here. And so this is where it all began. This is why we have those statues on Monument Avenue. And this, if we can liberate Richmond, uh, we can liberate anywhere on the planet. And so uh, with that history intact, we stand on many shoulders, particularly African women Mm. who didn't get their due, but who were always the Uh, primary stimulus in all the organizations that moved African people forward. So it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm ready for the revolution.
2: Good morning, Chelsea. I'm Art Burton. I am the executive director of Kinfolk Community, which is a nonprofit that works on transformation of black communities. Uh, empowerment and self-reliance and the operational director of community unity in action which is a black social justice leadership organization where we we work on advocacy and programs that affect community of colors And, um, and my work is around defending black communities and particularly black children and most recently, I have gotten clear about the fact that in this city, you are either maintaining racist systems or you are working to dismantle racist systems. And mm-hmm. so my work right now is about how and my work is about dismantling racist systems and um, and like King. Uh, Celine Kalafani just said, we, the thing we share is that we understand that in this moment, we are in a fight for the soul of this city, and not only this city, but this nation. Mm. Um, and much like the battle for Navy Hill, this is about what the next hundred years looks like, not only for Richmond, but for the country, and even for the world. And so, um, I think it's important that people understand that this is not just a a city battle. This is, uh, we are on the world stage and have been on the world stage for a minute. And this will determine whether, what kind of country and future uh, we'll have in in this world, really.
0: So this show, we really talk about place, space, and time and our place being the native land of Richmond, the space being created and made up of people of African ancestry, and this time right now. How would you all describe the time, political context of Richmond that's happening right now?
1: I would say pregnant with possibility. Uh, For the first time in 20, 30 years, we have uh, an election that gave Democrats the House of Delegates, State Senate, they control the Attorney General's office, LG and G, and for so many years we've had to hear we can't do anything <laughs> legislatively because the Republicans have a supermajority. Well, that is no longer true. So the night of the election, as the results were coming in, I, I started disseminating. Uh, some agenda items there that we have uh, for this legislature and it's a very important time for african people because uh we are the catalyst we are the base of the democratic party and appear to have a little power in the democratic party but all that is about to change and uh i'm looking forward to the future
2: great
0: all right
2: um well, um, go ahead next question <laughs> oh,
0: okay okay so no comment yeah. from Mr. Burton I'll you know I'll say as far as the state political context I am very curious to how this general assembly work is going to be going and a lot of people may know that I am a founder of a marijuana justice um, nonprofit and I'm working to make sure that we are educating all our legislators about the importance of legalizing marijuana not just decrim and the racial implications of that and in my conversations in just the last couple of weeks, I am hopeful, but I'm, I, I'm hoping that um, the birth goes well and healthy and uh, because I, I am still very um, hesitant to start cheering too quickly. And, and I, and that's what I want to say about that because as far as, i'm i'm very hopeful so we will see i'm going to watch how it goes
2: well you know i didn't i you know i don't you know in february when the governor came out in blackface i advocated for all black people in the state to leave the democratic party and their social justice allies and caucus outside of both the democratic and republican party because in my opinion the democratic Party in this conversation about race and racism is inauthentic mm-hmm. as long and, um, and I still believe that. I know it would have been a lot of work and nobody wanted to do it, but my feeling is that, once again, you're either maintaining a racist system or dismantling it, and I yeah. think as long as black people in this state are wed themselves to the Democratic Party mm. without a specific agenda, that improves their lives. I think that we are just, you know, you know, as I like to say, the the analogy is a different wing on the same racist bird. And so I think we just flying on the racist bird. And so, you know, I don't, you know, when folks, you know, I, I love everybody, but when they start talking about what the parties are going to do, I, you know, I think I think Northam has already demonstrated to us what he's going to do when he got with his VMI friends and decided they were not going to step down. And and I think uh, Mayor Stoney and uh, Justin Fairfax kind of showed us what they were going to do. They'd rather fight each other than fight the racist white people. So, I mean, I I don't know why we should be, you know, what, what we should be confused about.
0: Right. Well, when you ask about the political context and time um, from two uh, (laughs) uh, long-time warriors, these are the type of answers that you get. So I don't don't blame you, Art. And as somebody that caucuses with the Dems, I will tell you that this is a painful experience. And um, it, I don't invite black people to the Democratic Party because I don't think that anybody honestly should have to go through some of the things that you do. But I'm here to do very strategic things and, and make the, some moves. But I don't blame anybody for that, for any way of even thinking that way. Because, again, I don't I don't even actively invite people to the Democratic Party. But I do actively invite people to participate, especially locally here in, in Richmond for politics and having the conversations about Navy Hill RVA and the development and as well as tying it into the stories that we were just hearing from the enslavement and the breeding grounds that people might not know, but also stories from black political movements from just maybe a couple decades ago. Right. Right. Well, I mean,
2: right now in this state, we are at the height of black political power, right? I mean, and maybe in this country, when you look at the lineup we have from Congress all the way down mm-hmm. to the city of Richmond, mm-hmm. and in, in our work, we consider the mayor of, of Richmond the second most powerful politician in the state of Virginia. <laughs> um, after the governor, you know, mm-hmm. I did the math. My, my father and the social justice warriors in 1970, I think people have to understand that black political voice in this city is 42 years old. Right. Followed by a 150-year history of black people and women being excluded from having a political voice. Right. The fight in 1970 was about black people having a voice in the distribution of public dollars and public land because the white power structure represented by Tom Farrell's father-in-law had taken everything from black people. And so when we look at Navy Hill 42 years, and, and let's be clear, the white power structure when they had to cede political power to black folks, vowed they would not rest until black political power was wrestled away and they controlled everything. And we have seen over the last 42 years where they have systematically worked to destroy black communities. And once they take this 80 blocks of the central core of downtown, control public tax dollars for 30 years, take ownership of that last piece of public land, um, they will have succeeded in less than 50 years in ensuring that black black political control over tax dollars and land was gone. And in my opinion, the very reason for having black politicians and black mayors would be gone as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that not that you can say you have black politicians on council now representing the interests of black people, but we're coming to this place, you won't even have black faces on city council.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so you dropped a lot of things in there, Art, and for a lot of things that maybe a lot of listeners don't know about. Number one, you mentioned your daddy. Yeah, uh, oh.
2: who worked with Curtis Hope. Curtis Hope was the public housing organizer who organized both poor whites and blacks in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s and filed a lawsuit because when uh, blacks started to get to the point where they demographically had a majority in the city of Richmond, the white power structure annexed Chesterfield County to dilute black political control. And he filed a lawsuit, which brought us to the current government today,
0: Right.
1: And, and let's say now that Brother Holt went to Oliver Hill, Samuel W. Tucker, Crusade for Voters, Virginia, and Richmond NAACP, and they wouldn't even have anything to do with him. Wow. So he had to reach out to uh, legal teams in Washington, D.C., mm. who decided to come here and file that suit. So those who were purportedly For uh, these changes, but because of his socioeconomic status, they didn't um, support him until way after the fact. So let's say he was a brother from the hood who organized oppressed and poor people, and because of that, the uh, gatekeepers wouldn't deal with him.
0: Even the black
1: ones. That's right.
2: Well, well, you have to understand, the black gatekeepers had made a deal with the bird machine as early as 1930. I mean, they had worked in bed with the bird machine. And the other piece of the story is the person who did support Curtis Holt was a white lawyer by the name of Carlisle. So I find it interesting now when we're in the middle of this fight and... We have black folks questioning the validity of what young white people being in this fight. It has always been our white allies, not the black power structure of this city that has supported uh, diversity and equity and well, let me, because, you know, y'all, I don't know where freedom and justice went. We just got rid of that and said <laughs> equity and inclusion. Those were safer words we for white we people. We used to fight for freedom and justice. Now everything is like equity and inclusion. Where the hell freedom and justice go? With Freedom and justice, okay,
0: who are fighting for freedom and justice. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be my favorite episode. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <sighs> All right. Sorry, y'all. I'm, I'm having a real black girl geek out moment right now. Um, keep going. I don't even have no questions. Just keep going. What? Uh, Okay, no, I do have questions. So you you have dropped a lot of knowledge for folks that are are probably not able to keep up if they don't know what's actually happening. So I want to encourage everyone to go to our very first episode where we had Julian Hader on and we talked about this story in the annex, um, annexation that happened in the lawsuit. Right. So these gentlemen are coming in now, giving a grassroots perspective to that academic one that Dr. Julian Hader from U of R did. So you talked about your daddy who was working in uh, a freedom fighter in the 1970s. You also mentioned something about Tom Farrell's father-in-law.
2: Yeah, yeah, he mar- his father-in-law was one of the architects of this uh so Richmond that you know Richmond never had massive resistance. They always had what they call passive resistance where they simply moved the line and ex- included small amounts of black people in and moved the line so that white people moved out as black people moved in. Um, Tom Furrow's father-in-law was one of the architects of that strategy, which we still implement today. I find it curious. It's called the Bartholomew Plan, which was an urban renewal plan that eliminated most black people from the city. And you know, I find it interesting that while the mayor talks about the Richmond 300 plan and his vision of the future, he's still implementing the Bartholomew plan. He ain't implementing that, his plan. He's implementing the Bartholomew plan, um, which pretty much eliminates, you know, uh, when we talk about Gilpin court, and those 700 families, most people don't realize that they represent the last black community in Jackson Ward that in 1929, 92% of all black people in the city of Richmond lived in Jackson Ward. Mm -hmm. So we're down to like the last 700 families living on land that they have historically lived on, most of which has been taken and stolen by the white power structure who are now saying we're going to take the rest of your land and you're not welcome on, you're not even welcome to live in your own communities. And that's really, um, and, and I think the other thing, you know, public housing has always been the base of black political control in the city of Richmond. And so when we fight for public housing, we're not fighting just for the poorest black people in the city. We're fighting for all black people in the city because once you lose public housing, you lose your political base. Um, so I I think those are are just
0: yeah yeah, yeah. I um I want to bring in King Salim and and ask you a little bit of bringing in a little bit of your history here in Richmond political movement and power building um how did you kind of enter in the space what have you been doing right I, I I I don't feel like enough people are connected to the good work that folks like you two have been doing in this area for years and there's no reason why we have to wait until these stories are long gone to talk about them
1: well I arrived in Richmond on August 24th 1977 to attend Virginia Union University. And interestingly enough, that's when the first African majority city council Mm. took their seats. So in a brief amount of time, we went from a majority to a minority. And the whole gentrification piece, uh, I had the privilege, I was a political science major at Virginia Union And I had uh, political science professors. I had members of the uh, State Senate and House of Delegates who pushed us to go to city council meetings, the Virginia General Assembly, et cetera. So uh, I had that privilege. And as a history major, I got to study the history of Richmond and Virginia. And coming from Cleveland by way of Birmingham, Alabama, we were so close to political power before the change to an uh, at-large powerful mayor mm. that uh, even in college, we got to do advocacy and have an effect on, on the papers that were produced by the Richmond City Council. So after that, I uh, worked in the nonprofit sector for the Virginia Association to abolish the death penalty Richmond Peace Education Center. I was the first African organizer ever hired uh, there. Went from there to the Virginia State Conference, NAACP, where I served as uh, the executive director for 15 years and for eight years I was uh, basically the assistant director. So we had, I've had the opportunity to serve um, and to serve and to have some accomplishments. And one thing I did learn is in Virginia, you must be as consistent as the raindrops because even then with the Democratic complete majority, it took years and years and years to get progressive legislation through So I know that this is a marathon, not a sprint, Mm -hmm. and we have to be diligent. You have to have perseverance. Uh, As Oliver Hill told me once, uh, he said, uh, after watching a documentary about Charles Hamilton Houston, his dean at Howard Law School, and all of those brothers and sisters died early, Mm -hmm. and I said, Mr. Hill, how did you live to be such an elder, and he said, I worked hard, but I played hard, (laughs) Balance." But he also said, they were myopic. They took it personally. He said, you can't take it personally, it's not personal. And that, uh, you know, we're here for a short period of time and we can all make a contribution. And that's why I'm optimistic, because uh, as an elder now, I uh, know the power that we have and if we work, if we organize, if we collaborate, if we get those who will take a position to take positions, we can create the milieu mm-hmm. that we have a million person army behind us. And there are tactics and strategies, as we learned from uh, Osaji Foquam and Krumah, to make those things happen and we'll deal with those in secret.
0: So we have this opportunity here in Richmond. Everybody has a chance to make a contribution. Yes. And I think that's where we all all are right now is how to figure out how our contributions are strategically fitting in to the greater momentum. I think that's where a lot of people are even becoming paralyzed as they don't know what to do or where to go. And that's why I like talking about history and bringing up the stories of what people have done and Art, you mentioned that public housing is a base of a voice of the people here in Richmond. I'd really like to unpack that a little bit because I've been on this journey down Alma Marie Barlow's story and how relevant her voice is right now to public housing. And she was the founder of the Richmond Tenants Organization Association in 1977. And the reason why there is a platform for that voice. And I was talking to an elder this week, Reverend T. Turner, and he was really talking about how the culture and the fire that she has has transformed over time with generations obviously and there has been just like anything the milieus change and it's important to be able to lift up what those platforms stand for and they stand for the voices of the people in the housing units but it's again i had never really before julian hater's book again i had not known about miss barlow that's not something that was passed down. So I, I wanna really just kind of push on why public housing is really a stance for the people's voice. Why right now with public housing being pushed out, including with the Gilpin families that are right here close to the Navy Hill, why is that so important, not just to gentrification and housing, but to the voice of black people?
2: See so you, you you have to understand that in this city, most of the positions that are taken by the social justice community are compromised positions, Mm. whether you're talking... So when Curtis Hope filed his lawsuit, he filed a lawsuit to return Chesterfield County, the white folks in Chesterfield County, back to Chesterfield County because black people in the city of Richmond enjoyed a majority. Um, The courts would not allow that. And so this nine-ward system, district system, was the compromise Mm-hmm. in the supreme court case between him and the white power structure right. and that those districts were made up along the line of giving black people a majority of city districts but most of in most of those districts you had public, large amounts of poor blacks or public housing residents and so the organ And what had been organized, what Curtis Holt had been successful in doing was organizing public housing residents. Right. That's what he had been successful in doing. Right. Um, it, and like uh, Salim said, it was only when black, the black power structure figured out he was going to win the Supreme Court case that they actually join the Supreme Court case and help broker this compromise. And so when we look at black political control in the third, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and and now uh, to a lesser extent the fifth, but originally the fifth, Mm -hmm. those were black districts that had a large, those were districts that had public housing, and public housing is what gave us the majority of black people in those districts. So when we discuss, uh, and what we have seen is over, particularly over the last 10 years, is a real effort through gentrification and housing development to change the demographics of this city to where I don't even think black people even enjoy them. Without the Hispanic community, we don't even have a majority in in most of these districts. Now, in 2005, when Saad El Amin ran for city council in the sixth district, he said that the 6th District is the only district where a black politician can speak unapologetically for black people and not face political repercussion. Mm. And so when you look at 24 apartment buildings being placed right downtown in the smack of, in the heart of the 6th District, then you understand that This is not just an effort to revitalize the city, but it's to shift the
0: demographics. Um, And quick question. When you're talking about those 24 apartment buildings. 2,400, yeah. Okay. And you're talking about with Navy Hill? Yes. Okay, okay. Navy
2: Hill. And when you look at what the kind of pressure, you know, you already have plans on the table to eliminate Gilpin, which is in the 3rd District, okay? Right. And... Mosby, which is going to be talked about, which they're trying to bring up, yep. you're talking about the elimination of the the two centers in the third and the sixth district, right. which means that at that point, one, districts one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven will no longer be uh, black black districts any longer, okay? And so that is... And I you know, it gets kind of funny because when we come out to to you know, Lily and I, we partnered um, she we always disagreed because I've never agreed with this strategy of dividing poor black people in, in Richmond. You know, um, I lived in Highland Park on Fourth Avenue and Dove Court was on First Avenue, and the idea that the people on First Avenue were any poorer than the poor folks on Fourth Avenue was kind of, you know, it was always kind of, but there's always been, an, for at least for the last 20 years, a real intentional effort to marginalize and isolate public housing residents from the rest of the community. Um, When I went into Mosby Court with Kim Folk Community, my greatest sin was exposing publicly the conditions that black people were suffering in public housing. Mm. Because up until even four years ago, as a city, most people never saw or understood the suffering that was occurring with poor black people that lived in public housing. Mm-hmm. Um, until I took my organization to Mosby and we started to lift the veil up. Mm-hmm. You know, the story was there's this great stuff going on in Creighton and everybody else is okay. No, it wasn't. And now we're finding out that none of the great stuff in Creighton existed either. This is a redistribution of public tax dollars to the corporate community. Mm-hmm. That is what this is. Um, Housing vouchers, voucher money. Well, you don't get no food stamp money now. That's like $7 million that comes into this city every month in food stamps that goes right to everybody but the black people who get it. Tax dollars from housing. They want all of this public dollars. They want to divert it to control of the corporate community now, away from council, where we could have the opportunity to have someone speak to the needs of black people. That is, that is what this is
0: about, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. Right. Well, and that's
1: what capitalism is. <laughs> Come on. Capitalism says uh, one-tenth of one percent will own and control the distribution of wealth, the means of production, and the rest of us will await crumbs falling off of that table. It's always been that way. I wanna go back to the building of I-95. I served on a commission of some sort where we saw the videos and the pictures of the destruction of Jackson Ward, Navy Hill, all of these indigenous communities where African people live that were replaced by public housing. And it looked like Hiroshima and Nagasaki when they were hit by the atomic bomb. The only thing they left was 6 Mount Zion Baptist Church. And then to read the minutes of what those all white city councils and the teams for progress and all those organizations were saying about those people. Uh, That was one of the most traumatizing events uh, that I had to endure, but it's always been this way. Capitalism has been in effect. In fact, our enslavement produced capitalism.
0: Right.
2: And so then you have Alma Barlow. Let's talk about her, who's Ah. this, this dynamic black woman who is the head of the RTO, who... Starts this campaign called "This Is Our Home," Mm. which in nineteen, which she says, "Look, we're we're going to treat public housing as if it's our home because for most of this, this is the only home that we're going to have, and so we're not going to accept resident status. We're going to say this is our home, and we're going to defend public housing and work." to improve the quality of life of public housing. And she was like the matriarch of all of the current public housing leaders. Um, and so even today in, our, in the circle of CUIA, our mantra is this is our home, this is our land. And so even though black people in public housing don't have legal title we say we have historical and communal land rights based on the fact that this is where we have been historically since coming out of slavery and so you know we are going to we're going to take ownership of this land and we're not just you know this idea that you can just come in and move us and we don't have no rights and and that is the other piece of this If you live in public housing, you're the only black people in the city who enjoy federal protection under the federal law. And that's Mm -hmm. what this is also about. Once you remove those black people from that land, you take their federal protections away, which is different than what the city says and the state says they enjoy federal, you know, they like, you know, black folks in public housing are the last indigenous people. They're the last Indians basically because they enjoy federal protection and that's why folk want them removed because you know yeah they don't want them to have those rights
0: we know that the federal protections is what has protected most of the civil rights acts emancipation i mean it's all come from a federal state so when people talk about states rights and being able to make these decisions in different things a lot of times it's to peel back and dismiss those same protections um that we have this right to all right you're blowing my mind i'm just going to say like you are actually blowing my mind so you're answering the question that i hear all the time which is well tell me about the connection between the evictions and navy hill rva people are like i just i still can't figure out i got a text message from one of the council people actually during this last council meeting in november 12th it said you know i'm still having a hard time putting these two together I don't know how after hearing something like that you don't put this together but just for the sake of talking about the current project people are understanding that it came about and in- a terrible process. As far as procurement, right? that's something that we've heard from Earl Bradley for years and years and thank you to King Salim Kafani coming to City Council on November 12th again talking about these procurement laws. We know federally we're talking about the procurement laws even the Civil Rights Act of 1866 being stripped away, the Civil Rights with Comcast but right now, Navy Hill, RVA is coming out we've got the IRS complaint. Uh, we've got the people possibly even getting paid for holding signs. We've got the procurement that was off. We've got the community benefits that are just good faith. nothing's actually in writing, right. You were at a meeting art that I thought was really great. You said you know they basically want us want city council to sign a blank check. Oh
2: yeah, yeah well first I want to say for I'm gonna use your term king for all the Negroes that think you are sitting at the table making decisions over the Navy Hill project. And um, I need to let you know you are not making any decisions. This is not a new process. When we were fighting shock, when, when the social justice community was fighting Shockle Bottom in 2014, um, I was told then that soon as that battle finished up that there was a, already a proposal to build a Coliseum, uh, up the street, so you know the idea that black people are sitting at the table shaping this proposal is absolutely false. This proposal was a done deal when it was put on the table, and for all the so-called shaping that uh, the black negro, the negro influencers are doing, you haven't been able to get ownership uh, of anything and like the Navy Hill commission said everything in the proposal that the developers get is written in the in the proposal and everything that is suggested for the community is is implied and on the back end of the proposal so and i would tell any of you guys who are out there You know, the day the deal is signed, Tom Farrell gets a $5 million check. And so tell me what your check is going to be on the day that the deal is signed.
1: And the history is, let's look at all of these projects that were done the same way. And starting with the largest one, which was the city jail. Procurement, not bungled, it was intentionally done. Man, breathe, Celine, breathe. But uh, (laughs) the City Jail, Stone Brewery, Washington football franchise, uh, and the EDA used to be able to do things and have meetings in secret. I remember one time uh, one of the contractors who hadn't even been chosen or approved was going getting certificates from City Hall to purchase different things. We're like, how could he do that? But all of these projects have gone down from Byron Marshall as CAO, this Cuffey as CAO, it doesn't even matter. The faces almost don't matter. These, that's how capitalism operates. And all of these uh, projects uh, violated federal, state, and local procurement laws, policies, procedures. And um, the hardest thing was getting the media, council members, anybody to ever really take the time. to Because it takes a lot of reading, studying, yes. and research. Right. And I used to have council members tell me, I'm, 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 I'm lazy, I, I'm not going to read all that. And we would sit there really? and, and teach them, yep. and they would still come and vote. Where the money was. And so I would say we would be having a stadium in Chaco Bottom if one generation of capitalists uh, liked another generation that owned 85 million in property and land in Chaco Bottom, uh, because that's what made the decision. They didn't want Salomonsky to be able to do that because he would have locked. That whole district down by, he would have been worth billions.
2: Yeah, and, and, and this is always about a small group of yeah. p- powerful white men locking down a certain. I mean, that's essentially what Tom Farrell is, is trying to do. I mean, we have a deal on the table where the citizens of Richmond are going to spend $600 million to build a coliseum. I've never heard of anybody naming someone to manage something that you haven't even built yet, like the mayor has done. Um, After the citizens build it, you don't even get a voice in what the name it is. And we know that already Dominion has filed for the rights to name it the Dominion Coliseum. So, I mean... And they get two percent. I mean, on top of the five million they get on day one, they get a two percent developer's fee. I mean, it is just to me unconscionable. And and let me and let me be clear because I said this to the mayor in December of 2018. I'm not against the building of a Coliseum. Okay. Um, I'm against the lie that's being told that the city cannot afford to build a coliseum unless it wants to do it this way. Um, if this city wants to build, and and my recommendation was we just borrow 500 million, put 300 million in public education, build a coliseum, if the community wanted to do that. And if we put up our money, let Tom Farrell put up his money, and we just own it straight out. But... You know that's not what this is about. Um, The lie, no risk art. So if there's no risk, why not use your own money and do it yourself? Right, that's what I'm saying. No risk. Right, right. Right. Because that's what we, you know, that's what we put the young black mayor there for Mm. was to own something for black people. He's our proxy for ownership. But you want to give up the ownership to, you know. So I mean, and the biggest lie is that the city can't afford it when the city can borrow up to $2 billion and has put a self-imposed uh, self-imposed debt ceiling on what it will spend. And we watched for at least the last eight years where every year at the end of the year, we turn money back. Mm. And we put it, we, we, we got 140 million sitting in a rainy day fund, you know, but we claim we can't build no houses for black folk in we <laughs> Yeah, we. we we can't we can we can't do nothing a um, cesspool
1: of corruption right and it the deception they are just using people and that's that's what they always do and it's our responsibility to awaken the public that this is what's happening and I mean and we don't have the we don't have billions of dollars to organize our people. But uh, we're going to use our voices. We use all media opportunities and organizing to awaken the sleeping giant. Because when they see the, the okey-doke we've fallen for, um, a coliseum, what is it going to do for you, me, the people? Not a darn thing. 90% of the time it's going to be closed.
2: And and, and, I'm, and I'm not saying I'm— I'm saying if we want to build it, we can build it as a city. Right. But it's the citizens' decision. Right. And the mayor hasn't made a case for that. Right. I would also like to, you know, people don't seem to understand that the social justice community in this city as is bigger and more organized than it's ever been in the history of this city. Mm. It crosses social, economic, cultural. Uh, racial lines, it is a state movement, Mm -hmm. it is not confined simply to the city of Richmond. Um, It has demonstrated over the last year and a half its ability to influence and shape policies in the city. Um, And so, you know, and the fact that, you know, you paid $25 for folks to hold signs and didn't get but 30 people, Um, should be pretty indicative of, you know, where I, I believe, you know, there's a panic on. And I would just let everyone know that we've been very intentional about not showing our full hand as a community. I mean, this is our first time even opening our mouths on the subject, okay? Right. We ain't even amped up yet. So <laughs> if, if you're having challenges now and we ain't even amped up, then, you know, going into the first of the year, you're going to have some real problems. Yeah. Um. And as far as I'm concerned, as long as the ownership rests with uh the white corporate community, it's a wrap on this one.
0: Right, I agree. And just this week we heard that the council vote, will probably be even pushed further back from the January to probably March because the city is hiring the consultant, individual consultant. And that just happened or hasn't happened yet. I don't think the person has started yet. So that is, again, something that the social justice community, I'm pointing over here to Art, has been saying for a while that they're not going to vote on this in January again. We're going to we're going to still be working on this for a little while. But I want to wrap up and and our last segment of the show. I want to do a little bit differently, but I do want to touch on What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment of the show where we invite our guests to identify the privilege that they walk around in the universe with and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. I want to ask you all to either share your privilege or speak to the listeners about how to use their privilege in this fight against Navy Hill RVA.
1: All right, I will say uh, no participation, no right to speak. You must participate. If you put your hands behind your back and say this doesn't affect me and you don't participate, you're against your people. Participate. We say uh, you got to advocate. Those of us who can must use our voices and our bodies to speak for those who either will not or cannot speak for themselves, advocate. We say, agitate. You know, your clothes don't get clean in the washing machine unless the agitator is doing this thing. And we must be the agitators in society and stir it up and stir up the gifts that we have within. We say, demonstrate. If need be, let your feet hit the street. Uh, the only people who say, duh, marching is old, are people who don't know what we accomplished. If you're not fighting, you automatically lose. Even hogs headed to the slaughter have the audacity to scream when their lives are about to be taken. We say uh, litigate. If a need be, take them to court. We can go to George Wapner's dead art, but we can go to Judge Judy or somebody and try to get some relief that will give us time to do the other organizing and we say liberate like our great queen sister Harriet Tubman. She had gotten to Philadelphia, could have chilled out, bleached her skin, got a nose job, et cetera, et cetera, but she knew that without the liberation of the masses of her people, her individual liberation meant nothing. So we must use her example and use the examples of all the ancestors and elders who we are coming behind, and like we got VCU's asphalt off of our ancestors, we're gonna get uh, Dominion off of our land in the middle of the city, and uh, make them come to us because, you know, the people united will never be defeated. Boom. How
2: does pri- my, how does privilege show up? Um, it's it's interesting to me that in the middle of this huge conversation about Do- dominion, um, there is this narrative by the uh, black power structure being spun that those of us on the social justice side of this are outsiders, that we are losers, that uh, we don't sit at the table while the decisions are being made. And, you know, it's kind of funny because... The way, the way it shows up for me is that, you know, I I pretty much have the, you know, first I run an organization that's got nine of the most dynamic social justice leaders in the city attached to it. And as the operational director of that organization, I can pretty much pick up my phone and talk to the head of anyone in this city at any given moment. Um, directly to the mayor, directly to the head of the housing authority, directly to the school chief, directly to the governor. Okay, um, and so that's a, a a privilege that I have that a lot of you know that a lot you know, and most people would look at me and they would be like, "Wow, you know," because I ain't always clean like the king is. Cause but I'm not a king, so you know I'm just a warrior. But you know, as as what I consider the greatest warrior for black folk, you know, I do get to go into those rooms and speak to those people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a whole lot of uh, responsibility to to have. And so I do have to articulate. um, And then, you know, when we talk about the social justice movement, as a black activist, we have um, been able to build this huge, Community justice network, which is this, which gives us access, unprecedented access to activists in other communities that we've never, you know, and, a, and a, ability, technical, intellectual, human resources that we've never had before, that we work very hard to build. Right. And people need to understand that, you know, when you look at this movement and you do see. 100 young white folks show up, we've been very intentional about building that because the, you know, they got skin in the game too. This is about, right. you know, they don't like these, a lot. they don't like the racist systems any more than what we like. They don't like what their mamas and daddies and grandparents did any more than what we like what they did. Right. And so they've got a lot of skin in the game. And listen, at the end of the day, Nobody wants to work three jobs to pay for a house, right. okay? And so that goes, you know, this is about how we're going to live mm. in this city. And that's not a color thing. That's, you know, because what we fail to forget, see, we're old, we old heads. We, we, you know, it's interesting. Both of us come out of Ohio. Both of us come out of the black power movement. But we're, there's a generation of folks who came out of hip hop. both black and white, who have a whole different philosophical construct than the old white guys and old black guys like us, you know, Mm -hmm. where everything was just black and white, you know. And, And I work in the gray areas now, and, you know, we're trying to push new systems, new programs. We're not, you know, we're not just fighting against things. We're fighting for things Um, I got a call last night where somebody called me up, and they said, well, you know, they told me to tell you you can have anything you want, and the sky is the limit. And, you know, my only question to them was, is that half of a billion dollars, okay? Because, like... (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, we talk about, you know, what does that mean? Because, you know, but what I want, and I think that is the difference, is not anything for myself. Right. It's right. for communities, and really my work is about how we demonstrate our own ability given resources to transform our own communities. Mm. This is about empowerment and self-sufficiency. Right. You know, and so um so so to be able to have that level of influence, to do this kind of work, to be in this multicultural movement to to fighting for the soul of the city and like Salim opened up with, literally changed the nation. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how it shows up for me in the world.
0: Right. I am so sad I have to wrap up the show. Thank you for even uh, touching slightly on the different cultural differences and movements of the hip hop community. We've had Michael Millions on the show and he's actually, I just saw that he joined the movement of Richmond for All you can catch out his mural right there beside Mama J's. But it's interesting now to see the people that are coming together because they're just watching what's happening here at Navy Hill. I am so thankful for you two coming together on our platform here at Race Capital. This is a historic moment. My mind is blown and I am so grateful for being able to be in this space and being able to tell this story for so long and now having it recorded. And if you guys don't- Look, hold up. Hold up. Thank
1: you. Thank you for being our media source.
2: Thank you for having me. You know, 22 years ago, Salim and I—maybe 30—we were students at Virginia Union University together, and he walked up to me and asked me, "Would I pledge Omega?" and I told him no, and he didn't speak to me for 20 years after yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't speak it. for 20, so, so, and this is the first time we, he, he didn't start smiling until he got back from his sabbatical. <laughs> he, I but, needed a sabbatical
1: ethical, right. 40 so this, but, right. 40 years. But, this, I had it, but
2: this is the first time we've actually ever sat down. That's as not fe- true, don't listen. Fellow. No, I mean, we have, is, have we, we have. This is the longest conversation we've had. This is a historical moment. That's not moment. true. He's, the, you, i'm older than you i should be for do i don't, I don't things, think you are brother. older than me i don't think you well, might not we'll be, but we'll have either. to see but you can you can <laughs> because you claiming that elder stuff and i ain't do like you're not I, elder yet look i'm like i was like Went into a, I <laughs> went into a room one day. They said, "Well, here are our elders," and I was like, "Whoa, when did that I ain't know I'm like, "Still 42. What is the problem?"
0: Right. I I love this so much, y'all. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and I welcome you all back to this platform. Anytime you need to have some out there, please come back. All right, thank you. Thank you. A
1: revolution.
0: After that interview, I'm inspired to repeat the names of Curtis Holt and Ama Marie Barlow, the ones that were fighting for freedom and justice. And here at Race Capital, we'll continue to do the same. Thanks for listening, and thanks for using your voice.
2: I'm from the uh, the I, the, C, the, H, the